Yes. About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. You already know about Paul McCartney, and this isn't about him. So let me tell you about Linda McCartney, a young woman from a family of privilege who didn't fit the mold. She wandered into a life that did not suit her before busting out and going it alone. The force of her personality helped her become a huge success as a photographer, and she mixed it up with future icons of the 1960s before even meeting the man she fell in love with at first sight and with whom she spent the rest of her life as a partner and collaborator. This story is about a girl. Twenty-five-year-old photographer Linda Eastman is sitting in the dim light of London's Bag of Nails Club. The former dive used to be a place to pick up some paid companionship, but has become a favorite haunt of the city's pop stars, designers, models, and actors. It stays open late and features on its stage some of the hippest musicians. Linda's there hanging out with the animals the British invasion band she'd gotten to know after photographing them in America. They'd been the first big subject of her lens, which had put her on the path to this very moment. She's in London now on assignment to capture pictures for a new book, Rock and Other Four-Letter Words. Someone taps her on the shoulder. Peter Brown, assistant to Beatles manager Brian Epstein, whom she'd gotten to know a little bit in New York. When she got into town... She stopped at his office to drop off her portfolio. The Beatles weren't technically on her list of subjects for this trip, but she wasn't not going to hit up her connection to the world's biggest band. Now, at The Bag, Brown wants her to meet somebody. The place is jumping with this usual celebrity clientele, and so she didn't notice Paul McCartney arriving. Linda is by now pretty comfortable around rock stars, but whoa... It doesn't get any bigger than Paul. She plays it cool, though, and they quickly become engrossed in conversation with each other. He invites her to accompany him and a few friends to another club, the Speakeasy. But once there, he becomes distracted by the fantastic new song the club's DJ is spinning. Linda finds herself upstaged by Pokal Harum's A Whiter Shade of Pale. No matter, she can roll with it. The next day, she hits up Peter Brown again, and he's impressed with her work. It's good. It's really good. In fact, he admits that he snagged one of the prints from her portfolio, a candid shot of Brian Jones from the Rolling Stones. And to pay her back, he invites her to a press reception at Brian Epstein's central London home for the release of the Beatles' widely anticipated new album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Only a handful of photographers are invited, 
and this will be the only press event. The next day at Brian's house, Paul is slouched in an armchair. She drops to her knees in front of him and starts snapping away with her camera. Linda looks great, and she knows it. She isn't usually too concerned about her appearance. Almost carefully unfashionable, rarely wears makeup or a bra, and her strawberry blonde hair is most often described as unkempt. Today, though, well, it is the Beatles. Long hair neatly combed, false eyelashes, a flashy double-breasted blazer, and a skirt showing off her long legs. Among the dusty, old-school, all-male photographers, she stands out as a beacon of energy and lightness. Paul observes her with mild but growing interest. Then he's leaning forward, cigarette in hand, elbow on knees. And now they're really getting into it, and she's peering at him, head tilted, with a smile. The camera is in her lap, nearly forgotten. Linda came for money. Scarsdale, Manhattan, Hamptons money. Her father was Lee Eastman, a brilliant entertainment lawyer. The first song she had written for her was not by Paul McCartney, but by Jack Lawrence, one of her father's clients. Sung by Buddy Clark, Linda became a very big hit, the kind of easy melody that would appeal to her future husband. In fact, Paul's company today owns the publishing rights for Linda. Lee Eastman was born Leopold Epstein, coincidentally, and he came from a poor Russian-Jewish family in the Bronx. Linda's mother was Jewish too, but descended from a prominent family in Cleveland. She agreed to change the family name for Lee, who, like a good mid-century American man, wanted to reinvent himself in the image of a mainstream wasp upward mobility, the in-crowd. He privately adopted the motto, Think Yiddish, Look British, though, in fact, Judaism was not part of life at all for Linda and her three siblings. Linda turned up tall and blonde, as if fulfilling her father's aspirational image, at least physically. She was carefree, happy, and not especially interested in school. Animals and nature, that was her speed. Teachers told her parents, Linda seems more interested in watching the butterflies out the window than in looking at her books. As these traits and interests became fixed in her, Lee grew more disapproving and distant, alternately patronizing and scalding her. He wanted for his children what he wanted for himself. Success, wealth, stability, the American dream, and no less. That they were born into it was all the more reason for them to reflect it back onto him. Linda's siblings all lived up to his expectations in one way or another. Her brother John, the golden boy, by going on to law school and eventually becoming Lee's partner, and the girls by marrying well. My father would have liked me to have married a commuter, drink martinis in the evening. But that was completely alien to Linda. At her father's frequent parties, she would hang out in the kitchen with the help, interested much more in the cooking than in eating with the guests. She was, in essence, the black sheep of the family. A bit of an embarrassment, actually. 
I never understood how you're supposed to inherit your parents' professional or religious or sociological preferences, she said. Those are supposed to come from the world you live in. They're not in your genes. Yet, as alienated as she felt from him, she remained in awe of her father and wanted to please him. She got the chance to do so after she graduated from high school, when she met a Princeton student named Joseph Melville C., known to all as Mel. A good-looking and athletic academic who modeled himself after Ernest Hemingway, Mel received Lee Eastman's begrudging stamp of approval. Mel was going to grad school in Tucson, Arizona to study anthropology, and Linda joined him there, enrolling at the university in majoring in art history. She liked Mel fine, but she loved Arizona. The landscapes, the animals, horseback riding. She was still not much of a student, but if she were going to live the life her father wanted her to live, did that matter? And on that note, she finally dropped out. Lee's predictable response was to cut her off. If she wasn't in school, he wouldn't support her. She began looking for a job, maybe some kind of career. On the morning of March 1st, 1962, her mother, Louise, got on a plane at Idlewild Airport to visit Linda's brother, John, in California. Just after taking off, the plane rolled and crashed into the ocean, killing everyone aboard. The family reeled. In addition to John and Linda, the two younger sisters were just 12 and 15. But Linda, half estranged from her father, fled back to Arizona as soon as she could manage. I just escaped, she told a friend. But she was only trading a terrible situation for a merely bad one. Three months after her mother's death, she married Melville C., and six months later gave birth to their daughter, Heather. It was the end of December 1962, and she was 21. Unlike her new husband, Linda still had no professional ambitions. She was happy to be a mother. It gave her some badly needed sense of self, some purpose. The newly christened Mrs. Linda C. followed the traditional script for the role, keeping house, raising Heather, and generally doing what she thought Lee wanted her to do. She was photographed for the Arizona Daily Star, which highlighted her as a local cook preparing her meatloaf recipe. She loved cooking, but man, she wondered, is this it for me? With Mel deep in his books, Linda had a little extra time on her hands. The Arizona scenery was still calling to her, so she enrolled in a photography course at the local arts center, hoping to capture some of that high desert beauty. She met a woman there, Hazel Larson Archer, a highly respected photographer and teacher who told Linda that if she wanted to be a photographer, just start taking pictures. Linda was set free by this advice, bypassing all the technical instruction that would almost definitely have put her off the whole idea before she got started. Contrast this with Lee's fatherly advice. If you want to be a photographer, go and work for a professional. Get trained. Who Lee Eastman thought he was talking to, she did not know. Linda treated his advice as she always had and went out to take pictures. She had a natural eye and was encouraged by her early results. 
Her husband, meanwhile, was channeling his inner Hemingway, traveling the world, adventuring. All, of course, in the name of science. He asked Linda to go with him to Africa. For a year. Who Mel C. thought he was married to, Linda did not know. Mel left, and when he returned from his African safari, he found his wife and daughter gone. Back to New York, where she filed for divorce. By this time, Linda was fixated on becoming a photographer. It was, frankly, the first thing she'd ever been both passionate about and really good at. But she was a single mother in New York City and had to find a way to make a living, fast. Lee Eastman was sure as hell not going to support her after she'd blown up her marriage, the only stable thing in her life. Not that he'd let his granddaughter live on the streets, of course, but he had some conditions in mind that his prodigal daughter would most certainly not love. Linda didn't need to be told what that safety net would cost her. Instead, she landed a small apartment and a job as a receptionist at Town & Country magazine, which ironically catered mostly to a readership of Lee Eastman's, if not Leopold Epstein's. It was a brief glimmer of hope for Lee that she might get to know a better social set, but Linda immediately disabused him of that notion. She couldn't stand those people, the same superior wasp crowd she'd been avoiding her whole life. Lunchtimes were spent alone at the city's museums, looking at photographs by the masters, and she preferred to spend any free time she had away from being a working mother out in the rock clubs. A new photographer friend, David Dalton, just as unhappy in his job at Harper's Bazaar, got a freelance gig shooting The Animals, a British band they both loved. But Dalton knew from experience that no matter how good the band They invariably made shitty subjects. They had shitty attitudes, said shitty things, and always made clear they didn't want to be there in the first place. He managed to stage the animals in a pose, pretending to bust through a rope binding them. It looked okay, the best Dalton could hope for. But then he looked through the lens and was shocked to see how alive it looked. It took him a minute to put together what was different here. It was Linda, he realized. He described it afterwards. Streams of energy poured back and forth between the feral animals and Linda. Their eyes were locked on her, performing for an audience of one. Dalton let her take some close-ups of singer Eric Burden, her first rock and roll subject. And with that, her photography yearning became a burning desire. So when she saw her next opportunity, she seized it. Well, technically, she stole it. Opening the mail during another mind-numbing day town and country, she found an invitation to a similar press event to be held on a yacht on the Hudson River, and the band this time was the Rolling Stones. She slipped the invite into her pocket. No one there would miss it. When she arrived, so much press had also turned up that they wouldn't let any of the photographers on board. Their management had their own official guy to take pictures, and that would be fine. At that moment, Linda discovered her second rare talent as a photojournalist, her ability to get access. She simply talked her way on board. 
Like the animals, the stones came alive for Linda's camera. The official photos from that day showed them bored, at best bemused, milling about this stupid goddamn boat with a bunch of flakes and suits, when where they'd like to be is at the peppermint lounge, drinking and pulling as many fawning American birds as possible. Linda's pictures, on the other hand, are among the best candidates ever taken of the Brian Jones-era stones. Jones himself is absolutely seducing the camera with his eyes. One shot, which Brian Epstein's assistant Peter Brown would eventually steal from her portfolio, shows him looking cool as hell in his mod finery, mouth agape, melting into the boat seat, legs spread and crotch forward. But it was Mick Jagger who pulled Linda. He got her number and they went out, so to speak. This was a monumental turning point for Linda. She knew she'd captured fantastic images of the band and that it could change her life. But also, maybe for the first time, at least in a while, she felt like an attractive, fully alive young woman. She had a fling with the rock star, a sex symbol, and had loved it. And maybe most of all, none of this had anything to do with family or marriage, Lee or Mel. In a way, Lee Eastman should have been proud. Just as he had done, Linda was reinventing herself. This is when my life really began, she said. Photography saved me. I became, at last, a really free spirit. She quit her job at Town & Country. Lee could not have been more baffled by this strange person and her terrible decisions. He told her this would destroy her life. Not only to leave a secure job, but to go chasing these flash-in-the-pan, long-haired freaks with a camera? What? What? Rock music would be gone in a year, he told her. And what would she do then? I was miserable staying where I was, and that state of mind was worse to me than the possibility that this would all be over tomorrow, which of course I never believed. I love what I'm doing, but my family sure isn't making it easy for me to be who I want to be. Too bad. Photographing rock bands was already big business, but it was not what we now think of as rock photography. Cool people taking carefully styled, mythic, and aggrandizing images of even cooler people. It was still a bunch of general press guys getting snaps of the latest fad for their newspapers. Against this backdrop, Linda literally moved to the front of the pack, just making herself seen, and inevitably drawing the subjects toward her. She became the house photographer for the Fillmore East, the venue that was briefly an anchor of the American music scene. She shot The Doors, Jimi Hendrix, Neil Young, Cream, Frank Zappa, The Mamas and the Papas, Janis Joplin, and many more. And the newly freed spirit had affairs with both Hendrix and Jim Morrison, as well as people like Tim Buckley, and even actor Warren Beatty, at the time a huge sex symbol. Some people started calling her a groupie, and sure, You could expand your definition of the term to include almost anyone in that scene at that time. Sorry, any woman in that scene at that time. But under that definition, you could also say some of these guys were Linda's groupies. 
Jimmy's manager said, I don't think he would have had her around for one second had she not been so talented, if her pictures were not that good. Linda, I always thought, was a woman obviously in charge of her own destiny to a large degree. Morrison, too, was drawn to her. I dig that chick, he said, in an extremely Jim Morrison way. She's smart. Bob Ware of the Grateful Dead felt a strong connection and sums up her mystical touch. He says, There was definitely something that she had about her. She was maybe the only photographer that the guys could ever sit still for, for more than two or three minutes. She was an old friend, even though we just met. There's probably less than half a dozen people like that in your whole lifetime. There was that little flash of recognition. As for being labeled a groupie, Linda 2.0 was beyond caring what anyone thought. Model B.B. Buell, who dated many rockers throughout the 60s and 70s, told Linda, Oh, people are calling me a groupie, and I'm not one of those girls who hangs around hotel hallways. I don't want to be called that. Linda replied, They call me that, too. I know who I am. I don't give a shit. Meanwhile, by all accounts, her daughter Heather did not suffer for lack of care or affection. Linda structured her time so as to be there for the girl in her waking hours and secured a nanny for when she could not. Sure, Heather walked in on her mother and Jim Morrison getting close on the couch one night, but according to him, Linda just asked the girl if she was okay, then told her to go back to bed, that she'd come see her in a little bit. Hey, it happens. By the time she met Paul McCartney at the Bag of Nails in 1967, Linda Eastman was fully formed. She left the empty shell of her old life on a yacht somewhere on the Hudson, with Mel C. out on the Arizona Mesa and Lee Eastman. Well, Lee still loomed. But Linda would pay her own way now, no strings attached to her. She was voted U.S. Photographer of the Year, and her portfolio was an insane who's who of rock and roll which itself showed no signs of disappearing, despite her father's predictions. She'd made an impression on Paul, and as early as the flight back to the States, Linda was telling friends she was in love with him. One of those pals, Danny Fields, was skeptical. How much time did you spend with him? Maybe an hour or so altogether, and we were never alone, but you have to believe me. When did I ever say I was in love before? Fields acknowledged this was a new development. But anyway, there was nothing to do about it for now. He was Paul McCartney, the world's most eligible bachelor. He was still with Jane Asher, though Linda wasn't really worried about that. She suspected that their relationship was not built to last. She didn't see him again for a year. While Yoko Ono was going full tilt after John Lennon, Linda chilled at a distance in New York. It helped that she was incredibly busy working. She became the first female photographer to shoot the cover of Rolling Stone magazine when her portrait of Eric Clapton appeared there in 1968. She was a VIP in the New York scene, dropping in on recording sessions, attending private after-hours jams among people like Hendrix and Jimmy Page. Lee Eastman was not impressed. That could be the old man's epitaph, really. Any chance he had to criticize Linda, 
to put a cloud over little Miss Sunshine, he would take it. As independent as she was, it gnawed at her. She didn't know why she even wanted his approval, though any psychologist could probably have told her. Then the Beatles came to town. With a photo she took on the cover of Rolling Stone that very week, Linda was front and center at a press conference Paul and John held to discuss their new venture, Apple Records. That doomed bit of business over with, she and Paul picked up where they'd left off, talking animatedly. Paul and John were staying at the apartment of their American manager, Nat Wise. It was top secret, at least for a short time. The only people allowed in being the maid, a pretty young woman who was especially keeping John Lennon clean, and Linda. They'd hang out all afternoon, then she'd leave to get back to Heather. A few weeks later, he was in L.A. and asked her to come to the Beverly Hills Hotel, a favorite of royalty and movie stars for his luxury and privacy, a literal hotbed for the glamorous and notorious. And this is where it really happened for Paul and Linda. Their intense attraction became a love affair. Tony Bromwell, who worked for Paul, could tell that something was different here. For all the women Paul had been with, including Jane Asher, Bromwell now realized he'd never seen the guy in love. And this, he could tell, was that. After a few days of seclusion, they reluctantly went their separate ways again. Then Paul called her from London and asked her to come over. Jane Asher was out of the picture, having caught him in bed with another woman and breaking off their engagement. To Paul, it had been over already. He just hadn't told Jane. Linda did not need to be asked twice. She stayed at his house on Cavendish Avenue and began accompanying him to a few recording sessions at Abbey Road. This was a first for Paul, perhaps emboldened by Yoko Ono's obvious presence in the studio. Linda's transition into the inner circle was smoother than Yoko's, though. For one thing, the band already knew her as the girl who'd photographed them and many of their friends. For another, she seemed to have at least a pretense for why she was there, quietly taking pictures from the shadows. And then, of course, there's the fact that she was a pretty white girl. The Beatles, Linda discovered, were starting to come apart. She and Paul would always be the first to say that neither woman had much to do with that. You had four distinct and dynamic personalities, very young men, under intense pressure and scrutiny during an era of cataclysmic change. It's a wonder they stayed together as long as they did. Linda called five-year-old Heather every night, and Paul began getting on the phone with her as well, a great way to ease the girl into the transition that was to come. Paul loved kids and was eager for Linda to bring her over to London. In October of 68, a couple of months after Linda had arrived, she and Paul both went back to New York to collect Heather. They stayed for 10 days, during which Paul finally got to see New York, outside of the prison of Beatlemania. He was able to get around by himself, looking relatively incognito in his new beard. He saw the Fillmore East in Max's Kansas City, the Apollo Theater, and went to visit friends like Bob Dylan. Linda was spending most of her time with Heather, having been separated for so long, and Paul, whose mother had died when he was young, was taken by the maternal side of his new love. 
Heather loved Paul. They spent a day together, just the two of them. Paul cooked and they played games. He was thrilled. Linda's friend Danny Field summarized, he loved her, he loved New York, he loved Linda. And then finally, Linda took him to meet Lee Eastman, along with Lee's new wife, Monique, and Linda's brother, John. Lee was no more optimistic about this new hippie just because he was the most famous of the hippies, though he was perhaps slightly softened by the undeniable magnitude of Paul's financial success. When they arrived, Lee was cordial, but he took a few mild jabs about what he considered England's weak economy. Paul, who was, after all, Paul McCartney, didn't feel he had to impress anyone besides Heather and remained pleasant and unfazed. England's economy was not something he was particularly defensive about. This was unexpected and had the effect of disarming Lee. For his part, Paul was pretty impressed by Lee, a self-made man who had come from nothing, like himself. Lee was obviously smart, witty, and lived in a glitzy Park Avenue apartment filled with a formidable art collection. But mostly, it was Lee's understanding of the music business that stuck with Paul, who was beginning to have all kinds of legal problems with Apple Records, and was about to get hit with a lot more. Linda was relieved that Paul seemed to respect her father as much as she did, despite herself. And then it happened. Lee approached his daughter and told her that her young man is not as bad as the rest of the people in that world. High praise from the superior bastard. It was more than she had hoped for. They married that same year, much to the anguished dismay of countless female fans and had a baby, Mary, named for Paul's mother. Paul eventually adopted Heather. Mel C., who didn't have a relationship with her, said he wouldn't stand in the way of the adoption. She'll have a better life as a McCartney, he told his partner, though when she got older, he and Heather had a meaningful reconnection. The Beatles, of course, broke up. Paul had brought in Lee and John Eastman to help sort out the financial mess they'd made with Apple Records, and eventually he sought to have John Eastman appointed as their business manager. The other Beatles, already sick of Paul's de facto leadership, responded with a collective fuck that. But nothing would have saved the band by that point. In a deep depression after the breakup, Paul retreated with the family to his remote farm in Scotland where Linda slowly helped pull him back out of the depths. He wrote Maybe I'm Amazed About That Time, the first of many songs he would write for her. Every love song I write is for Linda, he said years later. The Eastmans represented Paul in both the bitter dissolution of the Beatles and in his solo career, which, thanks in part to their guidance, including bold forays into music publishing, made him an incomprehensibly wealthy man. Linda had finally received the approval of her father, but by then found she didn't really need it. She went on to have more success as a photographer, even as she devoted more time to becoming a musician under her husband's guidance. They made a beautiful album together, Ram, containing musical snapshots of their romance, and then formed Wings, one of the most successful bands of the 70s. They toured the world together for decades and famously spent only 11 nights apart from each other, 
10 of them while he was in jail for marijuana possession. They had two more children who usually joined them on the road. Linda also found purpose as a champion of animal rights and vegetarianism, marketing the first major line of frozen meatless meals and authoring best-selling cookbooks. Linda McCartney's home cooking was Bloomsbury's biggest seller until years later, when they published a fantasy about a boy wizard. After a battle with cancer, Linda died in 1998, surrounded by her family on her beloved Arizona ranch. She is remembered fondly by all who knew her. Her early photographs remain as perhaps the most definitive images of the 1960s and are still exhibited today. The Beatles were a cultural big bang who changed everything, and Paul McCartney is a living legend. But this isn't about him. This is about Linda McCartney, the artist, the free spirit who broke from the path that was set for her, who married an icon, brought love to his life, and became his partner in so many ways. This story is about a girl. About a Girl comes to you from Double Elvis and is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler. It was created by Eleanor Wells. Scott Janovitz is the show's producer and composer. Matt Bowden provides logistical support. I'm Nikki Lynette. Thanks for listening. You can follow me at at Nikki Lynette on Twitter and Instagram, at Double Elvis on Instagram, and at Double Elvis FM on Twitter. If you like the show, please be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more great podcasts from Double Elvis, visit doubleelvis.com.